Our sermon text comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 49. Relatively extended portion of text. So 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. Uh, This is God's word to you, his people. So pay careful attention to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. But a certain person will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. For there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's holy, inspired, and an errant word. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word, and now as we hear it expounded, we pray that you would press these truths into our hearts like a seed, that they would germinate a full uh, living plant of faith that is uh, nurtured and nourished uh, by your sustaining grace uh, all the way until we uh, are received by you in glory. And so help us now that we would be edified in our faith and that you would be glorified as the gospel is preached. Give us hearing hearts and obeying Uh, minds and uh, bodies transform our will that we would walk in your ways as we have prayed and we ask this in jesus name amen well if you've dabbled in a little bit of gardening or maybe you've more than dabbled you'll know a little bit about the curious nature of seeds a seed may be large or small it may be rough or it may be smooth it might be round or oblong it might be light or heavy, but what they have in common is that when you plant them, the resulting plant looks different from what you had put in the ground. 
Instead, what grows is a body of sorts. Uh, This body won't necessarily be one you can tell what it's going to be from the seed. You might look at a a date seed and think, uh, this is going to transform into an oblong plant. Well, it doesn't. Uh, And you may look at a little round mustard seed and say, okay, this is going to make a small shrub. But it doesn't. It makes a kind of tree. As you look at a, 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 a seed, it could be a shrub, a tree, a herb, a grass, a carrot, a banana, a soft succulent, or a thorny high fault brush. You don't yet know. Well, the Apostle Paul picks up this seed analogy to help us understand a central doctrine of the Christian faith. And that is the nature of the resurrection body. And as he does so, he teaches us that our hope of a resurrection body lies in the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, early in this chapter, Paul announced some very important news. He said that I delivered to you what is of first importance. And he gives a great scriptural summary of the gospel. That Jesus died and was buried and was raised on the third day and appeared to Cephas and then uh, to the others. So he moves from earlier being a news reporter and now becomes a news analyst. Earlier he announced the news and now he explains the news. Yes, there's a resurrection, but what is this resurrection body like? And even as we mention the phrase resurrection body, you may be thinking, actually, I wonder what that body is like. Will I transform into a bodybuilder? Will I be taller or shorter? Will I look like a grandparent? Will I look like a teenager? Now, these questions seem harmless enough, but they are questions which are problematic. Some questions are just curiosity, but other questions express hard-hearted unbelief. And as an expert pastor, Paul has predicted some objections that he thinks those in Corinth may raise against the resurrection. Well, Paul is speaking to a theoretical mocker or doubter in this passage. And this mocker or doubter wants to know, how is a resurrection possible? And even if it is, what kind of body is this resurrection body? You see, this question betrays the unbelief that comes from the pagan worldview of the Greco-Roman world. For them, resurrection was impossible. And not just impossible, the idea of it was gross. They were thinking a body has died and been corrupted. It's not possible to be raised from the dead. And even so, yuck. So this mocker or objector may raise questions about the resurrection. Well, Paul has a harsh response. He calls this mocker or doubter a fool. This imaginary inquirer is not just a curious somebody. This is a person with unbelieving motives. Now, using the word fool really refers to somebody who lacks the relevant knowledge. And this is something that we see throughout Scripture. Those who don't understand God's power are scoffers, mockers, or fools. The wise ones are those who fear the Lord, for the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
When we understand our relation to him, we can become wise. A world will seek to make you feel foolish for believing in the resurrection. But the fools are those who have denied that Christ is raised from the dead and that his people will have a resurrection body too. And so Paul calls this person a fool, an ignorant person who doesn't understand reality. Now Paul is going to rely on the fact that creation makes obvious God's power. It's obvious that God could raise people from the dead when you look at what God has done in creation. So Paul gives two lines of evidence. And it seems, as you, as you uh, see all his comparisons, you kind of get the, the broad idea, but it can be a little bit confusing, some of the language. So we're going to separate this into two lines of evidence. The first, he explains God's power in that plants grow out of seeds. What appears to be something small and bare, as he will describe it, becomes a plant in creation. And people have seen that. Secondly, he describes a variety of bodies that we see in creation. And there are two types of bodies. There's earthly bodies, there's people, animals, birds, fish, and there's heavenly bodies. The stars, the sun, and the moon. But in his first point, Paul uses an analogy from farming. This is when he explains God's power in that plants grow from seeds. So he uses this farming analogy to answer the question, that first part of the question, can the dead come back to life? Is a resurrection possible? Well, he answers yes in the same way as seeds. The seed must die before coming back to life. You plant it in the ground and then a new life grows. See, the Palestinians at the time, in Jesus' context, thought of the seed as when it's planted as kind of dying. Now, obviously, biologically, it does not die. uh, But the image still holds because the precedent exists in creation. Something is sown into the ground and something new grows from it when it is raised and it comes above the surface. So Paul's point is, if God can do it with plants, he can do it with his people. And then in his second point, he directs the Corinthians and us to consider that a seed and a plant are of the same species, but they have different bodies, right? The the date seed looks different to the date tree. The coriander seed, which is bigger than a mustard seed, only grows into a small herb. But in both cases, the body looks different Uh, The body that's raised looks different to the body that has been planted. And not only that, but on the earth, the creatures that God has created have different bodies. After humans, there's also different bodies on the ground and in the skies and in the seas, the animals, the birds and the fish. Beyond the near surface of the earth, the earthly realm, we can see the kind of heavenly realm, meaning the realm of the skies, not um, God's realm of glory, but the, the realm of the skies. And there we see these different types of bodies as well. Now, these aren't fleshly bodies. These are heavenly bodies, stars, sun, and moon. And they differ from one another in glory. The stars shine brighter than the moon, the moon merely reflects the glory of a a star, for example. 
But Paul's main point is uh, there are different kinds of animals on the earth and there are different kinds of bodies and there's different kinds of bodies in the heavens. And if we understand these lines that, of evidence that Paul is using, then we can understand the resurrection. Because God can raise dead things and bodies don't have to all be exactly the same. God can make different kinds of bodies on the earth and in the heavens. Now, mentioning all of these parts is a very clear reference to the creation days in Genesis. It very specifically parallels exactly what happens in the creation days. Uh, man, the, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the plants, the animals, and the heavenly orbs that shine, right? So Paul is... Uh, taking their minds back, casting their minds back to creating, to creation and saying, this is all God's power. He's the one you know is the creator. So he can do this. And Paul's point then is made clear in verse 42 because he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. God's power is clearly demonstrated in life, which is brought to dead seeds, and in the variety of bodies and the magnitudes of glory and creation. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Just like a seed which is sown in death, a different body is raised up. So too the case with our bodies. The body we sow in death is not identical to the body that is raised in the resurrection. Now, what we have now, Paul calls a bare kernel. Now, this kernel is good, as we will see God has called it good when he, very good when he made Adam and his image. But in comparison to the resurrection body, it is a bare kernel. And in the resurrection, body will be like the plant in full bloom. And so this answers the objections of the imaginary inquirer. In effect, Paul says the dead can be raised because we've seen this in creation. And the nature of the resurrection body will be different from the present body. But big deal. There's all kinds of bodies in creation, both earthly and heavenly. The God who has done these things can surely uh, perform the resurrection as well. But then we have a pretty clear transition in the text because Paul moves from these lines of evidence to make this analogy concrete. And he describes the actual nature of the resurrection bodies. Now, we aren't told a whole lot about the resurrection body in Scripture. But in these verses, we, again, we don't learn a huge amount about its appearance, but we're told what it is like. Now, the disciples, think about this. The disciples and Paul had seen Christ's resurrected body, right? He appeared to them. So it obviously wasn't so different as to not be recognizable as Jesus, the incarnate God-man, right? But it was glorious and transfigured. So there is a good degree of continuity, but there's also a couple of degrees of discontinuity and that's what Paul describes now but we don't have any more information really than about what is, is supplied in the scriptures and so 
as with all things, it is best not to speculate beyond what we have been told. Clearly, God makes this known to us when he says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things are for you and your children. It is dangerous for us to imagine and believe and hope and teach things beyond what the scriptures tell us about the resurrection body. So rather, what we are to do is to hear and believe and treasure what has been revealed. However much we may want to know more, God in his wisdom has told us everything we need to know about the resurrection body to fuel our hope until we take possession of it. Nevertheless, what we are told in the next few verses about the resurrection body and its nature is nothing short of marvelous. And Paul draws four contrasts for us that help us understand the difference between our bodies now as they are and the bodies as they will be in the resurrection. So he draws these contrasts and then finally he uses the contrasts to describe the first and the last Adam. Well, the first contrast is between what is perishable and imperishable. And the use of contrast is really helpful because we all understand how he's going to describe our bodies as they are. And then that helps us imagine what it would be like to not be that way. That's what the function of the contrast is. So it begins with perishable. Perishable, in this case, means the same way we use it. This Greek term means it has the possibility of decay, of death. This body, uh, this body can die and this body can decompose. Imperishable, on the other hand, implies some kind of transformation takes place so that the nature of the body is that it cannot die. It cannot break down. It cannot dysfunction. Nothing can misfire and nothing will die off or terminate. The second contrast is between being sown in dishonor and being raised in glory. Now, dishonor, is that's not in the general way we use that term in English. Specifically, what this means is it refers to something that is of no uh, long-term or permanent use, which is why our our bodies can be called dishonorable in the sense that they are temporary and they lack the glory that they will have in the new creation. And you can tell that this is the case by the contrast. The contrast between this dishonor uh, is with glory. In glory, this is the final and consummate purpose and state of the body. Moving from a temporary use, which in the dishonorable state can glorify God, of course, and in glory shines with the fullness of that glory, like the fully bloomed plant. Uh, Paul describes this in another way in Philippians 3.21, and I think this helps make this clearer. He says that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the honor that enables him even to subject all things, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. 
So the contrast is between lowly and glorious. The dishonorable doesn't mean bad and wicked in this case. The third contrast is between weakness and power. Now, we all know our bodies can become tired and sick. We can become malnourished. We can be traumatized. Uh, We are subject to the dangers of the world around us. But in the resurrection, our bodies will not be subject to any kind of weakness, but so filled and imbued with God's power that there will never be any kind of impairment to our bodies whatsoever. And finally, the the fourth contrast is between the natural body which is sown, which would be better translated earthly or fleshly or unspiritual even, the natural, earthly, fleshly, unspiritual body which is sown, and the body which is raised that is spiritual. And spiritual here means, doesn't mean no physicality to it. It means a body that is empowered and glorified by the Spirit, a body that is right for the heavenly realm. And we're going to go into the detail of that. So these are quite extraordinary contrasts by themselves without even having to explain them too much. But Paul does something interesting now. And he quotes scripture saying, as it is written. And here the scripture references Genesis 2 verses 7. The first Adam became a living being. But then Paul continues the same sentence. And these are now his words. And the expression, as it is written, now contains both Genesis 2-7 and what Paul has said. Paul seems to be conscious of the fact that he is authoring inspired scripture, even as he writes this. Now, what he joins to these words are something quite extraordinary. But before exploring them, we need to understand the implications of Paul quoting from Genesis in the first place, before we look at what words Paul has included as well next. Well, Genesis 2 is in the context of the creation narrative as a historical event. And in it, we are told that Adam is formed by God from the dust. And when he created Adam, when he formed Adam, he looked at him and said that what he had created was very good. See, Adam, when he was first created, was without sin. This is before the fall. So when, so when Paul is now talking about the body in these contrasts being sown, he's not saying sown in death. He's saying sown in creation. That when God first makes humans in his image, he sows them. Adam is sown and Adam is made from the dust. So his body was sinless, but it, it was perishable. It was dishonorable. It wasn't glorified. It was weak and earthly. It could, in theory, be subject to death and decay. Now, obviously, Adam wouldn't have died until he had sinned, 
But the nature of his body was such that when he did sin, that body could die. The body didn't change because of sin in that way. The body was still capable of, of, um, of death and decay. He could feel pain, potentially, or thirst or hunger. Now, God kept him from any suffering in the garden until sin entered. But his body was not yet glorified. Adam was in a position kind of like us. That there was the possibility of him dying, the possibility of him sinning. And we know it was possible for him to sin because he did sin. But it's not going to be so with the resurrection body, as we'll soon find out. So God has made Adam in the garden in a way that complements his earthly existence. He has an earthly body for the earthly realm. Okay, so... What Paul says then in verse 48, he calls Adam essentially the dusty man. Uh, We could call him Dustin. Uh, And so as was Dustin, Paul says, so are all who are of the dust. Those who are formed in the same way as Adam are the same as Adam. They can experience corruption, death, pain, hunger, thirst, decay, whatever it might be. So everyone who is in Dustin's image uh, can experience the same thing as Adam. What does that make Adam? Well, Paul clearly teaches all over his letters that Adam is a federal head. As Adam is, so are all the people who are in Adam, as Paul says right here. As he was, so we are. From dust he came, from dust we came, and to dust we will return. In effect, we get our bodies, our type of bodies, from Adam. As his body is, so our bodies are. We share in his same nature. We have to eat, we are hurt, and we get sick, and we can die. This is the body that God has sown for us in creation, the earthly body. But Paul announces something amazing. He adds to this quotation from Genesis and said, Yes, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is Paul interpreting Christ as being the, the, the second or the last Adam. A new federal head for God's people. Now, when it says that he became a life-giving spirit, this could either mean the Holy Spirit, a reference to the Holy Spirit, or it could mean his resurrected body. Now, clearly, it is much more likely from the context that the reference is to Christ's resurrected body. So the comparison works. Here, Christ's earthly body is sown in his death in the present creation. And his spiritual body is raised in the resurrection, which is the new creation. And this new body complements a heavenly existence. Just as the earthliness of the earthly body complemented an earthly existence, so the heavenliness, the spirituality of the, of the, of the heavenly body complements a life in the realm of the Holy Spirit, which is the new creation.
For this reason, the last Adam's body is heavenly, incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. He can never thirst, suffer, or die. His body was sown as a bare kernel, but he was raised up in glory. So, Paul then is paralleling what he said, uh, paralleling what he said about the first Adam with the second Adam. The last Adam is also a federal head, wherein Adam we received his body. In Christ, you will receive his kind of body. Jesus secured for you a resurrection body, and that exact kind of body will come to you in the resurrection. Just as Christ's body is heavenly, so too ours will be heavenly. In the very same way as we appeared like Adam in this earthly age, we will appear like the last Adam, Jesus Christ, in the heavenly age. What a truly remarkable and beautiful text and promise that we find in the scripture. As we hear these glorious truths, our faith is clearly to be nourished and multiplied through, through it all. Paul's words are like a fertilizer for our trust in the Lord, causing it to grow deeper roots and to increase in its growth and fruitfulness and glory. For this reason, we must not doubt the resurrection. We must not doubt the resurrection because that would so greatly diminish and impinge our faith. Our faith is meant to have its eyes on heavenly things, not earthly things, because that is the trajectory of history that through God's plan of salvation, he is making us like his son, Lord Jesus Christ. And this resurrection is our hope, our deliverance from weak and sinful bodies. It's a text to bring us hope when we may be ravaged by pain, cancers, diseases, mental anguish, sinful desires, imbalances, heartbreaks, disappointments. All of these things, God by anchoring us in the reality that is to come, gives us hope. Because in the resurrection, we will experience the glory of the heavenly body, such that there will be no pain, no death, no sin, no tears. And the reality is that this hope produces power for godliness in the Christian life right now. That we can endure in our sufferings. That we can fight against sin, which clings nearly and so easily entangles. See, the reason to say that is because Paul is writing this theology, this hope, this gospel to the Corinthians in part because not believing in the resurrection causes all kinds of evil in the body at present. If you, if you don't understand how things are going to end up, you won't live as someone on the trajectory toward the new creation. 
And so if we understand this teaching of the resurrection, we're able to live by the power of the Spirit with holiness in our present bodies as we await the spiritual bodies which are to come. But there remains a question in between our state now and the state to come. How does Christ's resurrection become our resurrection? It's all very well asserting that, Paul, but how does that happen? Again, that requires going back to the beginning, back to the garden where God created Adam. See, if Adam had never sinned and he'd obeyed God's instruction in the garden, he would have still become a new creation, a heavenly body like we are, will have in glory. He would not have died in the way that we will because of sin, but he would have been transformed. His body in heaven would be a heavenly body, not an earthly body as he was created. God's spirit would transform his body. But Adam <laughs> did not obey God in the garden. He sinned. And God said, well, now you cannot eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of life. The fruit of the tree of life would have been a reward, an inheritance of eternal life if Adam had not sinned. But we know that ultimately he did sin. And so he failed to earn heaven. Adam did not do it. What's God's point in how he set up the garden? To teach Adam that perfect obedience is required to enter heaven. Now, Adam failed in his work. And as he did, he plunged himself and all future earthly bodies into a state of sinfulness such that we could never obey in the way that we would need to in order to inherit eternal life. Adam's work as our federal head came to a complete disaster. And since he failed, this left the rest of humanity without hope of heaven. No chance of a glorified spiritual heavenly body. But enter the wonderful news of the gospel. God, in his plan for redemption sent a second Adam as a new federal head. And in his perfect life and in his uh, blameless sacrificial death, Christ succeeded where Adam failed. He succeeded through perfect righteousness. And it was acceptable to God. How do we know? Because God accepted his sacrifice, his obedience by raising him from the dead and giving him a heavenly body. Jesus was vindicated, shown to be righteous by God. This is proof to you that Jesus' death for sin has satisfied God's wrath and his obedience to the law has earned favor and heaven for the first of born of the new creation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. As Paul said earlier in his letter to the Corinthians, in Adam all died, in Christ all have been made alive. So, in his perfect obedience, 
Christ has earned heaven. And now, through faith in him, his own righteousness is imputed to you. So that you, think about this, through Christ's righteousness imputed to you by faith, you are guaranteed the same resurrection body as Jesus. He earned heaven for you through his active obedience and his passive death for your sins. He became a heavenly man, sown initially earthly in creation and raised heavenly. He became a heavenly man to guarantee you a heavenly body. Yes, we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but through faith in him, he is your man in heaven. And he is the guarantee of your imperishable body, as he, even to the extent that he sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling as the resurrected Lord of all his own creation. And he ensures that as the firstborn of the new creation, you will shine in new creation glory like the stars of heaven. And in order to certify to us this future reality, our Lord, the first fruits, the firstborn from the dead, has given you his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. So that even though you do not yet have your resurrection body, the Spirit of God is, has made you a new creation. And even though this body decays, he has already begun transforming you into the likeness of Jesus. Proof, assurance to you that since he's begun that work, he will complete it on the day of his return. So the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a proof, a seal, a guarantee of ultimate glorification. As Paul says elsewhere, Christ in us is the hope of glory. Meaning Christ in us is the guarantee of the heavenly body that Jesus now possesses. What wonderful news we have in the gospel. The promise of eternal life in resurrected body. No wonder Paul proclaims, if there's no resurrection, then you are still in your sins. And we are most of all to be pitied. But there has been a resurrection. Christ is raised from the dead. And for you who believe in Christ, our very risen Lord, he himself will raise you up on the last day. And you will live forever in heavenly glory with him. So let us praise our triune God this day, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for such a great salvation. And let us be conformed to Christ's image by the power of the Holy Spirit until that day of glory. Amen. Let's pray. Great indeed are you, O Lord, in and of yourself, our great God and Father. But great are you also and glorious are you in your plan of redemption. We thank you for the hope that we have as we await the resurrection body. And we thank you that this hope is anchored in the great reality that the Lord Jesus was sown uh, in, in death and raised in incorruptibility as our guarantee that we will be with you forever, fit for heaven because of the work of the, um, of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And so we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever to be blessed in Jesus' name.
Amen.